Welcome to Effortless Swimming, the podcast for swimmers, triathletes, and coaches. Join Australian swim coach Brenton Ford as he reveals the latest techniques and information to improve your swimming. Let's dive right in. Hi, Brenton Ford here. Welcome to the podcast today. My guest is Philip Rush, who is an open water swimming legend, and just wait until you hear about what he's achieved. So, first of all, he's completed uh, 10 crossings of the English Channel. He has done uh, a triple crossing, one of only three people to do a triple crossing of the English Channel, and uh, he's actually been the fastest. He's got the fastest two-way and three-way uh, crossings of the channel. So uh, just an amazing swimmer. He's done the Cook Strait eight times, which is the, uh, the piece of water between the North Island and the South Island of New Zealand. And uh, he's one of only two people to complete a double crossing of the Cook Strait as well. And at the moment, Philip... Uh, he t- takes people or he coaches people for the, the Cook Strait Crossing over there in New Zealand. And uh, he's just, uh, f- um, from what I've heard, an amazing coach and uh, an amazing swimmer uh, in his own right. So uh, really interesting stories in today's podcast. Listen in. We uh, actually got introduced by uh, a mutual friend, John, who uh, John came to our Hell Week camp in Thailand last year. And uh, John's actually coming back again in October. Uh, so if you want to come along to our Hell Week camp, applications are still open. So you can go to effortlesswimming.com forward slash Hell Week and uh, apply for that, the Hell Week camp coming up in October. Here's Philip uh, talking about how he got into the type of swimming that he's uh, become famous for. I was always coming 8th or ninth in the 1500 and 400s and just never quite had the speed. I turned to marathon or open water swimming at that stage, and we used to have a national event, which was a 3K event, um, and started at that, started winning that at the age of uh, 14, um, and it just grew to when I um, swam the English Channel three ways, non-stop. And you're one of three people, is that right, to, to do the triple crossing of the English Channel? Yeah, correct. Um, the first person to do it was John Erickson, and he did it in um, 38 hours, 50 minutes or something, and we were we were fortunate enough to be second um, and managed to knock 10 hours off his, uh, 10 or so hours off his record, and the third person is Alison Streeter, um, and she did it in about 36, 37 hours, I think it was. So it's, um, but that took a long time to build into. You know, it took years of training to actually be able to get your body to perform um, on the right day with the right tide, the right team, and the right weather. Yeah, I mean, was it, could you pick any any day to go, or did you have a certain window, uh, like a week's window? Um, you know, like like some athletes have. I mean, but have, you know, going for the triple was there any sort of different um, conditions that um, that you're allowed to sort of um, sort of take on? Um, we we were fortunate. Um, I had a good pilot, and 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 he's still around, Mike Oram, who takes a good volume of the swimmers across. Um, it took four years to get the. Um, the three way, and every year we went there, we were going to do it the three ways. You know, it turned up there, the Poms thought we were bloody full of the proverbial, to be quite honest. <laughs> in the first year, we um, managed to break the double crossing record, so it went from 18 and a half hours to we took an hour and a half off it. And then it sort of made them stand up and and be aware that possibly we weren't full of it and that we could actually do what we said we were going to do. 
I mean, my forte, probably looking back on it, is colder the better, longer the better. Um, and that was where I really shone. Um, but as I say, the, the first year we managed to do a double, and in consequence, years, it took nine crossings to get the three. You know, my coach would always, we would go out and get one crossing done. We would never call it off, no matter how rough it was. I'd always have to do one. If we're on the way back, well, we could call it then. But I was never allowed to hop out halfway on the first lap. He would always just make me, as part of the mental training and physical training, make me go one way. Um, and as I say, every time, every year, we'd have another couple of goes. We might do a double. We might do one and three quarters. Um, and eventually, four years later, the day come, got the phone call at 10 to 7 at night saying, right, we're leaving in an hour. I said, oh, yeah, okay, let's go. <laughs> we had everything ready. So it became sort of a bit of a, a standard jug. Oh, well, here we go. We'll be home for a pint and a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and breakfast in the morning sort of thing, and we'll have one crossing out of the way. Well, that day we hopped in. It was dead calm. Um, and I'm talking dead calm like flat as a bath. And hopped in, and, and three-quarters of the way over um, – my coach, we had a bit of a team going, to, to give you a full understanding. Um, the pilot's job was to pilot. My coach's job was to keep me fed and alive. My job was to swim. Now, if everybody in that team environment does their job and does their job well, you are successful. Now, halfway across on the first lap of the channel, we were sitting there um, and Tony leans over and we're just having a quick feed and he says, listen, he said, we're possibly on to break the fastest ever crossing. And I sort of looked at him and said, you're, you know, you're having me on. This was right through the night. So we'd swum right through the night um, and we were on for about a seven, a seven and a half hour crossing, which would have been the fastest ever crossing. So anyway, he said, I don't want you to go too hard. Remember, this is the first lap. Anyway, it's very hard not to get excited at something like that when the water's calm everything's obviously happening pick the pace up we missed the record by five minutes we went to 745 or something 750 i think for the first lap um and just missed the record by eight minutes or something um once we got to the other side we'd never stop and you're allowed 10 minutes out of the water we'd never do that we'd reach land clear land get straight back out, and if you're going to have something to eat, you do it once you got back out to the boat. Just as a mental thing, as soon as you plonk your butt on the beach and sort of look out at the world to see what's going to happen, all of a sudden you put doubt in your mind, do you really want to get wet for a bit longer, etc., etc. <laughs> et so it's about being focused and keeping that mind relaxed and engaged. Um, I was about, just to give you some indication, I was, um, I could hold five minute 400s day in, day out, maybe five, ten at night. I used to relax, go into a sort of a trance at night when it was dark so that all of a sudden you'd be conserving energy sort of thing. And then once morning came, bang, let's get off it again. So anyway, that first lap was, uh, it was the fastest ever male crossing um, of the channel. Anyway, went back, um... And we went eight hours 15 for the next lap, which was the fastest ever crossing from France to England. Um, and it gave us the fastest double crossing of 16 hours. Um, 
and 16 hours something. So, you know, things were unfolding. The day was dead flat. I was swimming well. My coach was performing the pilot. Years out, two years out, he told me what times I was going to do. Now, we'd talked about breaking, he'd talked about breaking records all the way through. I'd sort of said, well, you know, crikey, it's, that's a big call to make that. Anyway, he'd worked on pace. He'd worked on, you know, my timings, consistent timings. Anyway, <coughs> at this stage, we'd broken three records in the channel. Um, we turned around, and his, the pilot's uh, theory was the last lap would take about 12 hours, 30 minutes. And now, I'm, you know, I was young and, and full of it. Um, I sort of said to him, if we do two laps in 16, there's no way the last lap um, is going to take 12 and a half hours. You know, we'll be, we'll be going. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway... As that day wore on, once again, we turned, came back out, had our, had our food, our sustenance. And, you know, back then, that was things like baked potatoes and um, spaghetti, just small volumes of it every half hour. We didn't have all these gels and electrolyte replacements and God knows what you can buy off the shelves these days to keep you alive and, and keep you well hydrated and full of energy. Um, so ours was a very coarse form of the same thing. Um, anyway, the day went on, and I kept on seeing these lampposts. There's lots of lampposts in the channel and lots of stuff. And going, it seemed as if we were going around in circles. In it, anyway, after about three hours, bang, we were out into the tide. The last lap took us 12 hours, um, took us 12 hours, 20 minutes. Now, what I didn't know was we were swimming round and round in circles to let the tide go through, then we moved out into the channel, out into the out into the force of the channel, which hence took the 12 hours, 30 minutes. Away. You know, each lap he was about five to ten minutes off. So once again, he did his job. My coach did his job of keeping me alive, and I was fortunate enough to wash up in France and still be alive and able to claim all the records. Now, probably, and I, I tell this story quite regularly to people, um, and to younger kids, I sat on the beach. Now we sat there. Coach came over. He said, "I'm not going to touch you." I thought, well, that's a nice way to bloody. <coughs> he said um, he was a hard bugger. He was a, he was a pom, and, and he, he he coached some top um, top New Zealand swimmers over the years. Um, he said, "How far back can you go?" And I said, well, "There was a whole lot of things dropped out of my mouth at that point." Which <laughs> And I said, well, he said, I'm going for a walk. He said, I'm going to come back and then tell me. So anyway, he walked down the beach. Remember, you've only got 10 minutes. Anyway, I'm sitting there thinking, well, Jesus, he'd given me a drink. And we're just sitting there. And he came back. And I said, well, I can go back halfway. He said, oh, okay. Okay. I said, I know I can go back halfway, at least halfway. The water is still dead flat. Take this in mind. Dead calm. Um. Anyway, he throws the towel over me, drags me up and says, well, it's better to be known for three good ones than the person that went three and a half. <laughs> now, now is where the problem becomes. I'm 51 years of age now, and as my years go on, I'm thinking, why did he not let me have a go? The third tide is a shitty tide so to say it doesn't do what it's supposed to the next two tides would have been fine if i could have got halfway i might have been able to get to the finish who knows 
who knows? We never know. So the moral of the story is, if you have the slightest opportunity to achieve anything in any endurance, <coughs> you keep going until you don't have another breath left in your body. Mm. So that so if you were in the same situation as a coach today, you'd. I would now the same position if I was coaching a swimmer to do the English Channel three ways. I would um, give them a good feed, tell them to have a good breath and get off your ass and let's get back out there mm. and give it a go because you don't know. You know, we might have caught a good tide. The weather stayed good for us, so that was one risk out of the way. I was still breathing and swimming relatively well, obviously not as well as in the start, 28 hours later. It's, you know, you're... Your, my body was still all right. I was communicating. I, you know, there was nothing that was majorly wrong. So who knows what would have. And to this day, I don't know how far I could, could have swum. Um, but you've got to give it a go. You've got to try these things. And if you don't succeed, and, and, and this is the fundamentals that I work with in, in Cook Strait, um, you know, you will have given it 110% when you hop out of Cook Strait. There's no soft option of getting out of Cook Strait. Um, and these are things that I've learned as we go. You know, as a coach, you, it's a fine line from pushing somebody till they fall off the edge, but pushing them so you get the best out of them and get a result is is what I'm what I'm sort of saying. I'll regret that till the day I die now that I never gave it a go. You must try it and give it a go. Mm. It, it reminds me of... Um... There's this paragraph in a, a book that I read recently called "Thinking Like a Freak," and one of the um, one of the things they talk about is um, with soccer penalty shootouts, you're you're better off going or shooting straight at the keeper because that's your highest chance of scoring a goal because um, they're more likely to jump to the left or jump to the right. But the reason that most soccer players won't kick it straight, in, instead they'll go for the corner or you know off to the side. Uh, is because if they do kick it straight and by some chance the keeper stops it without having to move, it brings shame on them. They, you know, they're embarrassed for themselves and their country and they, they're more afraid of looking bad and, and possibly failing that way, even though there's a better chance of them scoring by kicking it straight. So it, uh, it sounds like it's a, a similar thing. He you know, maybe didn't want you to, um, to look, look bad, so to speak, by going three and a half laps of the... Oh, I, I, you know, I understand now. I still understand why he did. You know, we'd, we'd had an absolutely <coughs> fantastic 28 hours. We'd smashed everything. You know, I made the front page of the London Times on, and all those sorts of things. But what if we'd done it four ways? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and I don't know. You know, if mm. I got halfway across and passed out because I was bloody exhausted and and then I could say, well, I can swim three and a half ways across the English. This is looking back on it. At the time, it was the right decision. I slept all the way back on the boat um, and then I couldn't sleep for bloody near a week afterwards. I was wide <laughs> awake. I was wired, you know, no matter how many points we had, I still couldn't sleep. Um, but but it, looking as you get older and start assessing what you've done in life, I sort of thought, hell, that was an opportunity there to be to be really good instead of just good, if you know what I mean. And I turned it down. And it was never – you never do these endurance events for, for 
what it would look like or what it, you know, you're challenging your body against the tide, you know, against the weather, the tide and, you know, what you can do. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it, first of all, it's, it's, it's hard enough to stay up for, uh, for 24 hours sometimes, you know, just, just staying awake yet you, what'd you leave at seven, around seven o'clock or eight o'clock at night and yeah, swum yeah. for 28 hours. And two nights out there. So, I mean, that is, that is incredible. It's like, um, a friend of mine, Chloe McCardle, who did the, um, who just finished the longest, um, swim ever. It's just the, um, the amount that people like you and Chloe can put their bodies through is, um, just so far beyond what, uh, 99.9% of people, um, can even conceive of. I mean, most people haven't gone nearly as far as what they, uh, they think they can in terms of pushing their body. So it's, it's incredible. I, I, I'm still very much of the believer that, you know, if you can control what's in your mind and you do the training, then you will succeed. You've got to do the training. There's no soft option on that side. So you've got to do the training for endurance events and whether it's swimming the channel, whether it's, you know, doing an ultra Ironman, all these bits and pieces. If you can control what's going on through your mind, and do the preparation and do your training, you will, as long as your body stays together, you will succeed. Was there any uh, way along that, that third lap of the channel where you doubted whether you could make it? No, not, not, not when I saw I've, I've, um, There was a lot of work being done and things like that. What we did, we kept the, my philosophy on 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 swimming, so to say, is the sooner I can get in there, the sooner I can get on with it, the sooner I can get out. So there was obviously the odd time where your mind was just bloody cranking and your body was just aching. But once again, it's your mind saying, let me out of here. So you've got to control that, that, that small piece of anatomy on top of your head. And if you can control that, you can do absolutely anything you want. And what do you think it comes down to? Is it um, just training of the mind, training of the body? Yes, you've got to do the work. I'm not. I'm not saying that. Oh, yeah, you just hop in and swim bloody three k's a day, and that'll do you. You'll be able to. You'll be able to swim the English Channel three ways. You know, I was training a hundred k's a week. I was working out with a a swim a proper competitive swim squad, so my pace was always good. Um, but also. It took years of training my mind and body to be able to put up with that sort of pain. So the first year, you know, we did a double, you know, the first time I did a double of Cook Strait, I was in absolute agony. I was bloody swimming along like a lame duck at the end, and, you know, that was 16 hours. You know, there's no way I could have gone straight into the channel and done it three ways at that point. From there, we went from a 16-hour swim. We went up and did a double crossing of Lake Taupo, which was a 22-hour swim. And we were training the body, um, you know, getting my technique right so that I wasn't leaning out on shoulders <coughs> and catch up, you know, um, so that you're not spend, you know, you're, you're minimising the injuries that you're getting. So you're getting your technique right, and then you start building. That That was probably the best part of eight or nine years from when I first started ultra distance stuff to when I actually swam the channel. Now, my mind was we'd go through America and Canada racing. Now, we'd race in lakes and in the sea. You know, the smallest race was um, about eight hours. The longest race was um, 
19 and a half hours, and we'd be racing it. So by the time I hit England, my brain was numb. So that, bang, I could get into that routine of getting out there right, get on pace, get on pace, hold pace. That is why I was successful, because I could hold pace for long periods of time, which worked about the same pace as the tide. Um, and cold didn't affect me. You know, I'd, I'd, we could do, I think the, the longest we did was about six hours and six degrees, and everybody else hopped out of the race with hypothermia, and we swam for another hour, and I was the winner. I didn't finish the race either, but... Jesus. Else, <laughs> six degrees. Point, it was pointless carrying on. Um, but so those sorts of things build that mind and your confidence that, hey, you know, I'm... You've got to shut off to things. You've got to shut off. You know, it's very easy when you're training to think, oh, you know, such and such, we're going out to do this. I'm going to do this. If they're doing a long swim in the pool, you know, I'm going to do this. And, and he owes me money from the other night and whatever else is going through your mind. And then all of a sudden you think, oh, it must be half an hour by now. And it's one or two minutes. <laughs> it's controlling what's going on. Instead of thinking, right, I need to relax. I need to make sure I've got power on out in front. I need to make sure my elbows are up per lap. And then you just slowly keep doing that and you will slowly just go numb. And you all of a sudden you'll be thinking, Jesus, is that half an hour already? You know, you're holding good pace. As long as you're not dropping the water, as long as you're not losing feel of what you're doing, you relax your mind and bang, bang, it goes, it goes. And if you can do that, you can master most things because it is your mind that lets you down. How do you get that same sort of uh, buzz or feeling or, um, uh, uh, yeah, I guess that same sort of buzz uh, these days now that you're not doing those sorts of swims or do you find that it's not something that you, you really need now? Um, <laughs> it's a, well, I take it out on other people now. You see. Yeah. <laughs> people come to me and and want to swim cock straight, and I might not even <clears throat> met them. We'd have a few um, email, you know, we, we correspond by email, and I, I, I do things slightly differently. If you turn up with, if you come to swim cock straight and bring your coach, well, he'll be on the big boat. You won't be beside you looking after you. I will deal with you. Holy solely, and 99% of the time we will get the best out of each other on the day, and that's what I get a real buzz out of, getting people across Cook Strait. I hate failing. I hate failing, and while you're still breathing and those arms are still going over, we will still be swimming. Not, not your choice to get out of the water, Mike. <laughs> Let's talk about the uh, the Cook Strait. So for um, for those that are maybe in the States uh, or Canada or something and don't know what the Cook Strait is, it's the piece of water between the North and South Island uh, of, of New Zealand. And, um, I mean, for anyone who's been to New Zealand, they know what just how, um, how harsh and how rough uh, the conditions can be there in New Zealand. I mean, I was there, um, what was it, probably five years ago, and I was at a place called Raglan's on the North Island there, um, just at a, a surf spot, and there was – a guy who was surfing and he got caught in the rip there and he got taken so far out to sea that we couldn't see him and it took the uh, took the water patrol an hour and a half to find him because he was heading out into the middle of the ocean and um, that was that was my first experience of, uh, of the ocean in New Zealand and I thought geez you've really got to res- respect this place it's just um, it's really something else and if you don't um, 
you know, if you're not if you're not a hundred percent on with your thinking, um, or if you don't know what you're doing, you can get in a lot of trouble. Like this guy could have almost been in. Yeah, Cook. I mean, Cook Strait itself. It's twenty. Um, it's twenty six kilometres in a straight line. Um, it's like a funnel. I, I imagine it that you've got all of uh, part of the Pacific Ocean going through a small gap of twenty <coughs> kilometres. Either way, it is very deep. Um, which causes the volume of current and and tide that are going is going through there. The water temperature ranges um, on a good on a good summer for a month we might get eighteen degrees. Um, we're going out. I'm actually taking a relay team out there tomorrow. I'll probably have sixteen to seventeen degrees, and very shortly it'll drop to thirteen degrees um, at the start of winter, and that's the end of the season. Um, you're going across Cook Strait as a swimmer. Um, the tide runs through Cook Strait. In England, um, why it's so difficult in England, you've got all of Europe to land on for the channel. Here we've got about 10 kilometres. And once you do that, uh, if you miss that, um, this year we had a gentleman from America. We went 16 and a half hours. We had one rock left to get. We missed that rock. We were 150 metres from shore. Um, he was swimming with one arm, and we missed it, and we were on our way. We might as well kiss our ass goodbye. The day's over with. We weren't going to get back to get across Cook Strait. Oh, Jesus. So we quite often, you know, he was he was, he was was semi-hypothermic, and, you know, he'd blown his shoulder out, but the opportunity was there. We were so close. And I say that we, and he said to me afterwards, he said, Philip, he said, you don't know me, but you have just got the best anybody has ever got out of me. Um, and the whole time I thought we were going to get there. I was sure we were going to get there. The tide was doing strange things, but we were still getting closer and closer. This is one o'clock in the morning. It's pitch black. There's no street lights out there. And I could see the shape of the rock as we're going past it. Well, I'd say a million miles an hour, but as we were going past it, like nobody's business, it was finished. We couldn't do anything else. And at that point, we had to pull him out and say, "Mate, I'm so sorry." I, I for the first time, I was nearly in tears myself. I thought, you know, we've I've flogged you. I've, I've you've given me everything, and I can't give you anything in return. You know, we couldn't. We just couldn't get there. Mm. And and that's one of the. I mean, the coaches coaches feel it just as much as the swimmers sometimes, um, just without the um, without the exertion. I think. I mean, you, when you see a, a swimmer that you've been coaching succeed and and hit the, the goal that they've been working towards for x amount of years, it's um, you, you know you feel like you've accomplished that yourself. And then same thing goes when they don't achieve it. You, just that disappointment that um, that they've got. And with someone like that, I mean. You know, did he feel? I mean, obviously, he would have loved to have made it, but was he was he disappointed? And is, is it something that he would look at doing again next year, or, or does he feel like he's kind of accomplished what he wants to accomplish? Well, he was. I mean, he was bitterly gutted. He was absolutely gutted. And you know, hypothermia is something you cook straight just because of the water temperatures and because of the wind that we get. Um, it's very rarely we get a very calm day or a clear day with no wind and and dead still conditions. There's always a breeze of some description. Now, that breeze that goes all day, it just slowly works away at you as you're swimming and you're holding stroke rate, et cetera, et cetera. It's good. You're generating heat. 
But as soon as you start slowing down, stroke rate drops, cool breeze on your back starts just wearing away, wearing away, wearing away. We can do things with your stroke. We can do things with what you're eating. But once hypothermia slowly sets in, it's a matter of time. Now, then it's a matter of holding it off with warm drinks and, and trying to encourage, you know, keep your stroke rate up and all those little bits and pieces. But at the end of the day, once hypothermia's got you, you're only going one way. You can't come back from it. So it's a matter of holding it off for as long as possible. And hence, we were at the point where his next stage was probably in the next 15 to 20 minutes he would have been unconscious. Hmm. So we couldn't have, as I say, we couldn't have got <clears throat> any more out of him. There was nothing there, and that's and that's the way we. I, I I'm medically qualified to look after them, so I have confidence in in dealing with hypothermia, um, which is the main. It's the main reason people don't succeed is hypothermia and and just not not being able to finish. What sort of uh, what you know? Where do people come from? Um, for those that sort of contact you to to want to swim the Cook Strait, so I mean, what's what's their background? Are they have they been swimmers all their life and they they want a new challenge? Or I think you'll find these days, um, you know, that we've got this. Uh, I call it the sort of the, the next stage of marathon running. You know, marathon running was so popular for so long, and except people started hurting themselves with hips and all sorts. Now, open water swimming has become the marathon running of the 80s um, and everybody wants to do it um, and I I have to be quite harsh with people here at times I've got people that turn up I say look they say oh, I swim two and a half k's an hour I said don't waste your time you will not complete cook straight we need to be able to swim over three kilometers an hour um, and just from a wide range, this new seven swims in the world, which is the Channel, Irish Sea, Straits of Gibraltar, there's one in Hawaii, some in Japan, um, has really set the world alight. Everybody wants to do them. They're long swims. Some of them are cold. Some of them have got jellyfish. Some of them have got sharks. Some of them have got this. They're warm. Some of them are cold. So, so you know, you've, you've got a real wide range of, of, of people. And you have to be a reasonable swimmer to do them, but we're still getting. I still have people turning up, saying, "Oh, you know, I can, I can do this. I've done this and I've done that." We get them out there, and within half an hour, I'll sort of say, "Well, we're going to be on our way home in three hours," and sure enough, they're not moving fast enough. We just get swept straight out of Cook Strait very, very quickly. Mm. Yeah, right. So, um, how many people are you taking across each? Yeah, um, summer. we're looking about twelve. We're looking about twelve swims a year at this stage. Um, you know, I'm, I actually spent the day yesterday answering emails. So, if there's anybody out there listening that's waiting on an email, I am coming to it. <laughs> um, but you know, we're taking bookings now for 2018. So, so people. So, how long do people generally prepare for? People, People um, prepare if they're coming from nothing. I, I'd like 12 to 18 months preparing. Um, what we have been doing is we're building a place called Lake uh, Taupo in, in New Zealand. We take them across there first, which is a 40.2k 
freshwater swim so that it gives them that endurance and gives them the confidence that they can get out there. We end up finding out how the feeding works and all those sorts of things. Um, and then into Cook Strait the following year. But it's, um, you know, I do have people pull out and, and things like that. You know, you don't know what's happening in um, in two years in two years' time. But um, the other day I had a lady email me. She said, oh, I'm looking at swimming Cook Strait in 2020. And I did have to make the comment, I'm not sure if I'm still going to be alive in 2020. <laughs> but anyway, that was sort of, she's she's coming out to do a tour of New Zealand. She's going to build in. She wants to be here in time to swim Cook Strait and do this, this, this. So that's... You know that's great, and and you know if we can if we can accommodate somebody to get them across Cook Strait, it's the buzz we get of of getting people across. You know we've got a team that's been together for a long time. Once again, I've come from the swimming background of keeping the swimmer alive, and you know the skippers, they actually took most of my swims, so they've been around a little while and they have vast experience of the tides in Cook Strait. And you know every day is different. Every day the wind's doing something a little different, the tide's doing something a little different, the swimmer's doing something different. We never get the same swimmer twice. Um, but, you know, we have people come and try. They've, they've got within 150 to 200 metres of the shore and been out cold with hypothermia. You know, they'll come back and have another go. So the, they, the buzz that, that we get as a team is eventually getting them across. It's a very, very solemn trip home when we don't succeed. Yeah, I can. I can only imagine. I mean, yeah. so you know, getting out there is an hour and a half boat trip, and and to either side where we start, an hour, an hour and forty. So it's always a long, slow trip home. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus. Do you ever have? Uh, does anyone ever? Uh, once you actually show them what's involved with it, with the training and the the cold water preparation, does anyone sort of put their toes in and then go, okay, maybe this isn't for me? Oh, we don't. It's a it's a big investment. It's a bit, especially if you're coming from overseas. It's a big investment. And once we get here, I'm very much getting risk out the way. You know, if you're in Wellington, if you've come to Wellington to swim Cook Strait, you get here and you you dip your toes in, um, and you think, oh, that water's too cold, or I don't like the colour of it. You know, I think at that point we've got a a, a head problem. And you would have done the preparation because you would have done a couple of six or eight hour swims beforehand for me so that I'd know that what pace you're going to be able to swim for the day so we can set the whole thing up. And really at that time, it's just a matter of sitting down and, and talking about the problems of the world and, and working through it. And possibly the next day we're out and cook straight. Mm. <laughs> so if someone's uh, listening to this and they are thinking about um, swimming the cook straight, how can they get in touch with you? Um, yeah, I've got, there's a website, um, cookstraightswims.org.nz. Um, there's, and there's a whole lot of details. We've got a question answer, um, some questions. You know, people talk about sharks and what's out there under me, and, you know, I'm scared of this and I'm scared of that. Um, but just contact me. I do get back in touch with you. It is very popular. I just about need a secretary these days to answer all the emails. But um, it, it's becoming very popular. It's very trendy. We only get so many days a year that we can take swimmers um, and and we only take so many swimmers because what we try to do is make it the best experience you've ever had. It may not be, you might not think that at the time, but afterwards you'll think if you go and do other swims, well, they did actually look after me. Mm. 
Yeah, and I, I mean, anything that you work that hard for and that long for, like swimming the cook straight, um, is just something that you would, would never forget, I'm, I'm sure. And I, the uh, the listeners to the podcast, I mean, we had um, we had Chloe on uh, probably two years ago and um, and offered some people some sort of team, um, some relay swims for the, the channel, and um, she got flooded with um, with emails. So I'm sure you'll get... Um, get a few emails as well from the listeners to the podcast because it's, um, uh, yeah, I mean, the people that listen to this, uh, there's a, a lot of uh, open water and cold water fanatics out there. So um, I've uh, got no doubt that, you, that they'll get in, t- uh, in contact with you. No worries. Excellent. Looking forward to hearing from you. Awesome. Well, thanks for uh, joining me on the podcast and sharing those stories about your um, <laughs> your channel crossings and cook straight swims. And uh, I mean, anyone that looks at your um, your bio with um, with the the number of swims you've done, um, but also that the times you've done them in, it's um, it's incredible. And when um, our mutual friend John sort of um, introduced us, I just reading through what you've done, and I was amazed at at at, at how you've done it. So that's um, yeah, it's incredible. And and that's before I mean that was sort of in the uh, 19, 1980s before the internet and before um, uh, I guess there was there probably wasn't as much information out there as there is today. Um, so that was um, I think it makes an, an even greater achievement. Yeah, no, it was pretty rough in those days. We did have, I must admit, it was um, you know the food as I said, we were baked potatoes, spaghetti, and and baked beans, um, and you know the odd drink and things like that but we didn't have the range of stuff you've got these days you know gps's we can hold a straight line these days <laughs> <laughs> you know we can keep a swimmer and you know we've got a big compass in the bottom of our boat and 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 the gps checking them every 15 minutes to see what the tide's doing and you know days gone by we'd just be oh we'll head for that rock over there and see what happens <laughs> god how different it is today <laughs> <laughs> it's for the best it's for the best you know we get the better out of people Less yeah time Less time in there, less worry about weather. So, and it's a good result at the end of the day. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, awesome. Thanks again, Phil. And uh, no doubt, I'll uh, I'll get you back on the podcast and um, and and talk more about this sort of stuff because it's uh, I find it really interesting. I mean, my background's pool swimming and, and competitive swimming, not the uh, the long endurance open water swims, but I just love to hear uh, of, of stories from people like yourself who are who are into it and who have done really well because it's uh, it's a completely different world to what I'm used to, and I uh, can really I really respect um, what what you can do in the water. I would, um, the only thing I'd say I would have much rather been a sprinter. <laughs> Forty seconds or fifty seconds for a hundred meters, it would have been all over and done with, and we could have got on with life. Not twenty eight hours. That's right. It's just like um, I mean, that's the that's the argument in all swim squads is all of the uh, all the distance swimmers want to be sprinters because they're in and out and done, and they don't have to train as much. But um, not everyone's gifted with uh, those fast switch fibers, and um, okay. we weren't all born sprinters. So um, yeah, <laughs> some some people have got to be distance swimmers. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the Effortless Swimming Podcast. To get transcriptions, bonus videos, and to be the first to hear about new episodes, go to swimmingpodcast.com.